Aaron and I are so excited to be kicking off the first episode of our new series, CBI, in partnership with the Ohio State University's Chronic Brain Injury Program. The CBI program at Ohio State and its faculty, staff, and students are working to improve our understanding, detection, and treatment of brain injuries through research and community partnership. We can all agree that brain injury is an invisible epidemic that needs more visibility through building awareness, more research, and continuing education for professionals. Over the next few months, we'll be chatting with brain injury researchers about their work and findings in the brain injury field. We could not be more excited. Thank you for joining us on this educational journey. Welcome to the Making Headway Podcast, a podcast for brain injury survivors by brain injury survivors, providing resources and camaraderie for anyone recovering from any type of brain injury with your hosts, Aaron Martin and Mariah Morgan. Welcome back to the Making Headway Podcast. I'm Mariah. And I'm Erin. And today we are welcoming a researcher from The Ohio State University. She is an assistant professor in the Department of Neuroscience and does research with chronic brain injury. Her name is Olga, but we're going to call her Nikki. <laughs> Kokiko Cochran. Did I say that right? Oh, it's close. It's Kokiko Cochran. Kokiko so long Cochran. I am so yes. sorry, everyone. That's okay. <laughs> she has been focusing her research on the life stressors that challenge the immune system after a traumatic brain injury, specifically looking at how sleep disruption uh, plays a role in our inflammatory pathways after after uh, injury. So we're really excited to have this conversation. I think it's super poignant for everybody. Welcome, Nikki. Welcome. And I feel like during that intro, so many people listening probably were nodding their heads thinking about sleep disruption and brain injury. And not only that, but also like, I think that once you deal with the initial really difficult stages in your healing or recovery journey, you start to look ahead thinking, okay, I've dealt with today and I've dealt with, you know, yesterday, what happens for the rest of my life? And what does that look like? I certainly have had that uh, moment of paranoia having, you know, dementia in my family and wondering, okay, well, if I have, you know, genetic markers, how uh, obsessive do I have to be about, you know, the rest of my life and what this might have triggered? So, yeah, absolutely. So I think that is really a perfect intro to the research that we're doing because, I have always been fascinated with chronic outcome after brain injury. So not so much what happens within the hours after brain injury or even within a day or two after brain injury, but what happens a week later or a year later or 10 years later. And how does the experience of traumatic brain injury set the stage for development of neurodegenerative disease? And specifically, I've done research in the context of traumatic brain injury as it pertains to development of Alzheimer's disease. So we know that traumatic brain injury is a risk factor for neurodegenerative disease, meaning if you experience traumatic brain injury, your risk of developing dementia or Alzheimer's disease is higher, but brain injury doesn't cause Alzheimer's disease, right? So not everyone that gets a traumatic brain injury gets Alzheimer's disease. And within my lab, we wonder then brain injury plus what could set the stage for that pathology. Interesting. When you say traumatic brain injury, does that include those of us with acquired brain injuries or is it more the blow to the head or? 
Right. So our research is really more in the context of the traumatic insults that result from a blunt force trauma to the head. So I'm curious, I mean, we have talked a little bit about mouse models on the podcast before, but I'm curious to know, um, how do you go about your research, like the actual logistics of it? Um, and then perhaps we can talk a little more about you know, the findings. Yeah, of course. So we have a variety of ways that we can introduce traumatic brain injury into our experimental models. And the models that I have worked with are really in the context of rodents. And so there are some models, and and I think you've talked about this in a a previous podcast, where we have um, essentially a a mechanical insult. So essentially a a piston that we can use that is... um, controlled, you know, by a a specific um, pneumatic device that allows us to impact and compress the brain. So that's a very blunt force way to induce the trauma. But we also have other injury models. And actually the one that we use primarily in my lab is called a fluid percussion injury. And essentially we'll remove a small piece of skull on the rodent's head and apply a fluid pulse to the exposed cortex. And that results in a more focal injury at the cortex, but then that injury diffuses across the entire brain over time. That's similar to the impact with the piston, but it's not quite as severe. We get less cortical loss uh, with the fluid percussion injury. So those are two ways that we can administer brain injury But both of those often require us to perform a surgery on our animals and remove a piece of skull. And that's not really relevant to most types of human head injury because you don't have a piece of your skull removed before you experience the injury. So more recently, there are other models that use a similar approach but don't require the skull removal. And so we may still use an impact, but it's on a closed skull. This is better to model things like concussion, and we can better model repetitive injuries with those types of devices. And then some other labs, we we haven't done this ourselves, but other labs have also created essentially blast brain injury models where a real explosion is used to expose an animal to a blast-related traumatic brain injury that might be more common in military populations, for example. I was going to so, say, there's, yeah. I, I feel like I've done a teeny bit of Googling on research, and a lot of it is on veterans who have had blast injuries, um, which makes total sense. There's a large group of them, and they're easier to find than some of the rest of us who are scattered mm-hmm. throughout the world. Yeah. So as researchers, we really have a responsibility in the model that we choose to do our studies. So we have to think about what type of traumatic brain injury or brain injury we want to study and then select the model that will allow us to replicate that type of brain injury. And so for those acquired brain injuries, that will be a little bit different than the types of models that we use in which there's more of an impact. But even depending on what severity we want to study, mild, moderate, severe, repetitive injuries, we have a responsibility to consider all of those models and then pick the best one that really allows us to study that type of pathology in a rodent model. 
I'm curious, this might be a silly layman's question, but I'm not a scientist. Um, is there a way to study the acquired brain injury effects? Um, I mean, how do you replicate that? Because they are spontaneous, most of them, right? How do you replicate? Yeah, you can, but with some of the acquired brain injury models, you can use surgical procedures to um, stop oxygen supply, for example, to a part of the brain, which can result in some uh, accumulation of blood or damage to the brain. And so there are ways that you can introduce that into rodent models as well. Okay. Good to know. So it sounds like you have a little bit of background with the neurodegeneration, you know, cause the links to Alzheimer's. How does that translate though into sleep? How did we make that leap? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. So my postdoc was actually in an Alzheimer's lab. And one way that we can study the relationship between traumatic brain injury and Alzheimer's disease is by using different transgenic mouse models that have genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's-like pathology. And most of these mice have genetic mutations that are associated with early onset Alzheimer's disease. So mutations in amyloid precursor protein, even mutations in tau. Uh, those are the two hallmark features of Alzheimer's disease. And in my postdoc, my research was really all about administering traumatic brain injury to these different mouse models that were susceptible to Alzheimer's-like pathology. And I hypothesized that brain injury would worsen outcome, right? If brain injury is linked to Alzheimer's disease, if I give these animals that are susceptible to Alzheimer's disease a brain injury, then obviously their outcome will be worse. But in fact, that's not what we saw at all. And so we didn't we didn't see that. And, and in fact, a lot of times the pathology wasn't worse at all. And sometimes the pathology was better, which made no sense to me. Right. It was like it just was contrary to everything that I had hypothesized. But we did see that the inflammatory response to traumatic brain injury in the couple of mouse models that we used was different. And so that suggested that maybe the presence of those pathological proteins in our mouse models was changing the way that the brain could respond to traumatic injury. And so the inflammatory response then was different because there was already an inflammatory response to these accumulating proteins. So this really got me thinking again about traumatic brain injury plus what equals Alzheimer's disease. And that's a very basic way to think about it, right? Because life is complicated and it's not just as simple as brain injury plus one other thing equals Alzheimer's disease. But I really started to think about other things that could happen after traumatic brain injury that might influence inflammation and then set the stage for Alzheimer's disease. And ultimately, we know that brain injury causes sleep disturbances. That's very common in people who experience all severities of brain injury to then have different types of sleep disruptions after injury. Oftentimes, this will resolve over time, but not always. And then interestingly, sleep disruption is also an early feature of Alzheimer's disease. So this is really where I started thinking about sleep and sleep disruption as a potential link 
between tbi and alzheimer's disease that could have the potential to influence inflammation but then i think once i got to ohio state that evolved into thinking about sleep and sleep disruption as a stressor which i hadn't thought about quite as much as i was building on some of my postdoc studies but but that sort of evolved after i got to ohio state I think we should pause for a second. Um, Aaron, I know that you had sleep issues after your brain injury. Can you speak a little? I, I had yeah. some too, not as insane as yours, but could you speak a little to those just so that the listeners, you know, have an idea yeah. of where we're coming from on this? Right. I mean, I I have always been a very good sleeper. Um, you know, that's really never been an issue for me. But then I get my um, subarachnoid hemorrhage and I get home and I don't know, was it a combination? You know, I was on steroids because I was having so much pain. And that's a side effect of steroids is that kind of go, 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 go. And you just can't sleep. But also a side effect of having a brain injury is not being able to sleep. So I went a solid month where I'd get maybe an hour or two a night. And that was it. And I, I was a wreck. I mean, anybody that was around me at that point, like I was just. I, I wasn't clinically manic, but I felt manic. Like I was just go, 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 go. And like spouting, you know, every thought that came out of my mouth, I thought was like this amazing, like revelation in life. And then you look back and it's just not. And I could see like even looking in my journal, you can see me kind of falling apart. Like my thoughts are just incoherent and tangential and it was a mess and it it was really tough. Like Troy really had a hard time managing me because, you know, I'm on my phone at three o'clock in the morning talking to my sister who's in England, but also shopping and buying presents for everyone and just go, 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 go. <laughs> it was tough. And I felt I was horrible. the recipient of some Aaron gifts from that time. <laughs> They're special. And my, and my reaction after my brain injury, it took me, I did not understand the relation between my sleep issues post brain injury and the brain injury. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I have always had trouble falling asleep at night. I just can't turn my brain off. And also I own a business. So like the number of things I have to worry about, the list is long. So like, you know, you get my like business owner anxiety going before bed and it's hard for me, but post brain injury, you know, we were told about the importance of sleep and rest. And so my husband was very diligent about ordering me off to a nap or ordering me up to bed early. But I had sort of that same issue falling asleep, but like times a hundred. And so I might be ordered to bed for a nap, but I would sit there, you know, lying there like I, I'm, I know I'm supposed to be resting. I know I'm supposed to be sleeping. I cannot do it. I literally cannot do it. Um, in the moment, I just attributed it to the same issue I had always had. But now, you know, in hindsight, I know that it probably was brain injury stuff. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah. I didn't really know anything about it. Um, until, you know, I was told you need to rest, take it easy, but then you have a mind that just won't stop. So my body physically Mm -hmm. couldn't do too much, but I wanted to, and it, that was just a really tough spot to be in. So I was going to say, this is, it's, it's making me think then, right? So brain injury alone can induce these sleep disruptions that I think are not, we don't know as much about them as we could. And, and clearly even recovering following a brain injury, 
you, you could use more guidance on what to do or how to manage that or even what to expect. And I, as I was thinking about sleep disruption for the research, I reflected on my own personal experiences with sleep disruption as well. And so one of the most stressful times of my life when I had a tremendous amount of sleep disruption was after I had my first child. So I reflected a, a lot on my experiences as a new parent because babies are so amazing and they're so adorable. And I was so excited and happy to be a new parent, but my sleep was a complete mess and I could not function in many ways because my sleep was so erratic and um, I, uh, I often reflect on an experience where my husband and I went to pick up some diapers at like Babies R Us and we were happy to be out of the house because we were like an hour away. My mom was watching the baby. We go to Babies R Us and we were so happy to be out and about. And I remember walking into the building and I swear this Babies R Us had purchased the brightest lights that were available <laughs> on the planet and had turned them up like as as high as they would go. And I remember walking in and I was like, could barely see because it was so bright in there. Like I wanted to put my sunglasses on and my husband, I remember he was like, wow, it's so bright in here. I'm like, I know. And then also everyone else in the store was moving at like the fastest pace also on the planet. They were like sprinting around and grabbing things and throwing them in their shopping carts and like talking so fast. And I was like overstimulated and could barely stay in the store long enough to get the diapers and the like two other things that I needed. And I was like, could not wait to get out of that store. And I really think that because I was in this sort of stressful lack of sleep state, that experience was just so intense. And it made me wonder here's an experience where I've got these external stressors, right? The baby is making me stay awake and I feel this way where I'm disoriented. The lights are bright. I can't keep up. Everyone is moving so fast. How is that experience on top of a traumatic brain injury where your sleep is already disrupted by the brain injury itself? Then you have these other life stressors, not necessarily bad, right? Having a baby, I was so happy to be a new mom but it was so stressful and had the sleep disruption that was associated with it. How does that complicate, you know, something that you're already managing that's irritating your sleep for lack of a better way to describe it. Having mm -hmm. had a brain injury and a baby, I affirm this, um, yeah. and some traumatic, honestly, babies are us experience. <laughs> yes. I affirm this because I had a baby pre brain injury and I remember babies are us being super bright <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and overwhelming because the shelves are really high and, and yeah. there are other parents in there, some of them with kids and it is overwhelming. Um, so I, I, I'm, I yeah, agree with this. I hated that story. <laughs> and nothing Completely. was where it was supposed to be. I'm like, it yeah. says online, it's in aisle T12. Why isn't it there? Yeah. <laughs> well, and especially as a new place. mom, there's yeah. like 10 of every different product. And it's oh, overwhelming because yeah. you're like, well, I, I know I know one of, I need one of these, but I don't know what the difference between any of these are. But that's a whole other 
tangent. Um, <laughs> yes. But, but yeah, right. I can it, affirm it is that a, feeling. It's awful. Yes. Like post-brain injury. Yes. I don't have kids, but um, just that feeling being in a store with the bright lights, things are moving. There's advertisements pulling you around. You haven't slept in days. It's awful. It's awful. It definitely yeah. is a stressor. <laughs> yes. 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 So that I, I think too, like that made me think all stress is not necessarily bad, I guess is, is, I don't know if that's the best way to say it, but in life, we experience many stressors that are generally viewed as positive, right? Having a child positive, even other things, being in a relationship, planning a wedding, being in a relationship where you're planning a surprise birthday party for your best friend, or you know, graduation coming up, right? These are very positive life experiences, but they can also be super stressful. And then combine that with other more negative experiences and stressors that we have, where maybe you're, you have um, caregiving responsibilities for someone with a terminal illness, or you're going through a job loss, or you're experiencing a divorce. Those are negative more negatively associated stressors. But what I realized as I was, you know, being a good scientist and looking in the literature, most of those stressors are associated with sleep disruption. And so then we look at sleep disruption, at least for my lab's research, as this common physiological consequence of stress, whether it's good stress or bad stress, you know, theoretically. And then how can that further complicate recovery after brain injury. So how are you going about researching this? What are you guys working on? Yeah. So right now, um, you know, again, we're all in experimental models. So we're working primarily with mice and we are administering a single moderate traumatic brain injury uh, using the fluid percussion device that I described earlier. So we give them a traumatic brain injury and then for varying amounts of time after traumatic brain injury, we will induce sleep fragmentation. And so we have a um, housing chamber that has a sweeper bar on the bottom of the cage that moves across the cage every two minutes. And it requires the animal to hop over the sweeper bar and that disrupts their sleep. It makes them wake up. And so we do that for four hours every day. And then we essentially determine how that influences stress circuitry in the brain and also how that influences inflammation in the brain after injury. And so we purposefully didn't want to deprive the animals of sleep, but we really wanted to just disrupt the sleep. And we chose to do this disruption at the beginning of their inactive cycle. So there's a little, it's a little tricky with rodents because they're nocturnal which is, you know, right, like they're more active at night, inactive during the day. That's a difference between us and, and the rodents. Uh, also, 
mouse sleep is a little different than human sleep. So they can sleep in shorter bouts, a couple minutes, and it's just more frequent as opposed to us. We sleep for maybe six or eight hours all at once. So the animals are getting some sleep, but we're just disrupting it. And we chose to introduce the disruption at the beginning of their inactive cycle when they would be most likely to go to sleep or to want to sleep. And we did that in an effort to model kind of exactly what we were talking about before, having trouble going to sleep, right? Right when you should be ready to sleep, but then maybe you're thinking about all of these other things in your life that are causing you stress or those other external stressors are further disrupting your sleep. We really wanted to try to model that in our experimental studies. And so uh, that's the current uh, paradigm that we're using. And then after that four hours of sleep disruption, the animals are able to sleep as much as they want. They're not further disrupted until the next day, again, at that same time where we introduce the four hours of sleep fragmentation, and then they're able to recover. So they do have an ability to catch up on sleep if they want to. Gotcha. I'm really glad there's no sweeper bar in my bedroom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have enough, <laughs> enough running around. <laughs> I need a sweeper bar. I mean, I so, would think um, of maybe my dog being on the bed changing position. She's kind of like my sweeper yeah. bar. Could jump in <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yeah. So Nikki, how do you monitor, um, like how, what are your observations um, and how do you make those observations about the rodents? So we are really focusing a lot of effort on including behavioral tests so that we can see how the stress of sleep fragmentation affects cognitive performance. So within our rodent models, we can, it's not a perfect one-to-one -one comparison, right? Like we're always working within the limits of our model and, and rodents are not humans and we have to work within the constraints and the limitations of our model. But nonetheless, we can assess spatial memory. We can assess information processing. We can assess motor function. We can assess aspects of anxiety-like behavior in our rodents. And so we do introduce different behavioral tests as the animals recover after brain injury so that we can determine whether or not the stress of sleep fragmentation influences their behavior. But then ultimately, you know, at selected post-injury time points, we will take tissue for analysis so that we can look at the presence of reactive inflammatory cells. We can look at whether or not markers of inflammation are affected by that sleep fragmentation. And then we can also look at some hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease, for example. Again, it's not a perfect one-to-one -one comparison, but we can look for um, axonal damage, or we can look for microglial reactivity. We can look for cell loss over time and then, you know, try to link that to some of the features of different neurodegenerative diseases. Gotcha. So I'm curious, how do you test for, um, like you mentioned, um, behavioral stuff, like specifically, like how do you monitor a rodent for signs of anxiety? I don't, right. I don't know rodents well enough. To, <laughs> can you speak a little to that? I've, I've, 
and all, I mean, not all, but like the, how you're testing them for those things. Yeah, definitely. So this is where we can look for, um, we can use different tests that allow us to study, for example, an animal's exploratory behavior. If an animal is, is more anxious, they may not explore a space quite as much as an animal that doesn't have heightened anxiety like behavior. You'll notice that I'll use the phrase anxiety-like behavior, yeah. though, a lot because it's non-committal, right? It's, it's <laughs> non-committal. So we look for different like behaviors that may indicate an anxiety-like phenotype. We can also look for repetitive-like behaviors. So, for example, in animals that are more anxious, you may see increased grooming activity. So they may just clean themselves more frequently or they may groom their roommates more frequently so that, you know, you can tell there's one groomer that's just cleaning everyone's fur a lot, cleaning everyone's <laughs> fur a lot. Um, and then some behaviors that may not be typical. So for example, one thing that we will see sometimes in our female animals that are exposed to sleep fragmentation after traumatic brain injury is mounting behavior. So this is much more common in our male animals, you know, that they would display mounting behavior. But this is something that when females experience anxiety or stress, they can display those same behaviors. So we could also just observe these types of behavioral changes that are mouse specific, but that yeah. add insight to how they're doing and how they're yeah, feeling. That's interesting that it's a female thing. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. So what are some of the things you're starting to see in your research? Are there any themes emerging or? Yeah. So I guess I, I should say too, in addition to the pathology, in addition to the behavior, we're also measuring sleep. So we have the ability to implant electrodes into the brain so that we can also really see how the sleep fragmentation we're introducing is changing the brain injury induced sleep behaviors as well. And so initially we've seen that our sleep fragmentation, and these are pretty new data, but it suggests that we are really disrupting REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. And we have more work to do in that area, but it does look like that type of sleep is vulnerable to the sleep fragmentation that we're introducing. And then we're also starting to see some behavioral changes. So we are seeing some cognitive deficits, especially on the days that the animals get sleep fragmentation. But What's really interesting is that we have some studies where we'll give sleep fragmentation for a week after injury, and then we'll allow the animals to recover for a week. So they get sleep fragmentation for seven days, and then they just sleep as much as they want or do, do whatever they want for another seven days. And it seems like that period of recovery can actually change the effects of the sleep fragmentation. So the, the body can recover in some ways after that exposure to sleep fragmentation. Um, but we do see some cognitive deficits that are more apparent right after the animals get the sleep fragmentation. I think one of the interesting things is that we definitely see brain regions that are associated with the stress response influenced by sleep fragmentation. So neuronal activity is compromised 
in the hypothalamus, it's compromised in other areas of the brain that are important for coordinating the stress response. And we also see disruptions in neuronal activity in the hippocampus, which is important for spatial learning and memory. So the neuronal activity is affected by the sleep fragmentation that we're administering. And then inflammation in the brain is also compromised, not in a way that we expected, I think. So we expected traumatic brain injury increases protein A, for example. So then sleep fragmentation plus traumatic brain injury will exaggerate that, ex that increased expression of protein A. But instead we see sleep fragmentation increases protein A, but then it also increases protein B and C. So it sort of changes the inflammatory response that we see in the brain. Doesn't necessarily exaggerate what brain injury alone does in the brain. Interesting. And obviously we know this is ongoing research. So um, to our listeners, you know, just a reminder, this is, you know, still happening and we're lucky to have Nikki here explaining what she's seeing. So um, what else are you noticing? Anything um, particularly surprising? So I, I think one of the, one of the most surprising things for me has been the timing aspect. So when I thought about the stress of sleep disruption, I really thought about, again, my own experiences and immediately how I felt. I didn't think as much about even recovering from that sleep disruption. So for example, right now, you know, with a nine and a six-year-old, I feel pretty good. My sleep is good. You know, I kind of, I've moved past and been able to recover from that sleep disruption that I experienced when my boys were newborns. And we see those same things in our experimental models, that timing really does matter. And that while we may see some dramatic effects of sleep disruption after traumatic brain injury at one time point, that really can change a week later. And so I, I definitely have a, a better appreciation for timing as we go through these experiments. And I think that has been most surprising, but it's also been, it's, it's good. And it's also keeps me thinking about the research to see that sleep disruption after brain injury is having this effect in our experimental models. And it, it just challenges, it, excuse me, it challenges us to think, think more carefully about which pathways in the brain are affected. And really now we're in a position where we have to start thinking more about specifics and how our stress immune pathways working together to influence outcome. So essentially, do I hear you saying you have a time that you're not sleeping well, but allowing yourself to have time to recover and actually get better sleep might have positive influences on how your brain heals. So it's not like you had this one period of bad sleep and now your brain is kind of doomed forever. You're a lost cause. Right. <laughs> yeah, no, no, not at all. That's exactly right. Yes, that's okay. exactly right. So that is is the, I think, the light, right? The light at the end of the tunnel that we see that, that there is this opportunity to recover and that you may not be locked into some of these more negative effects that we're seeing. 
But I do think that we all will need to consider the effect of chronic stress and chronic sleep disruption or sleep fragmentation if we use that as a marker of stress. Because in that case, the consequences of that chronic stress may be less malleable, for lack of a better word. You know, if you've got chronic stress, in general, chronic stress is associated with poor health outcome. And so, again, though, I think we, we have more work to do in defining that boundary. What is an acute or an amount of stress that you can work through versus where is the line to cross to where you get to too much stress that there are some more permanent consequences. We, we do not have answers to those questions yet. You know, we're just now seeing that sleep disruption, external sleep disruption that we can administer in experimental models does influence stress pathways. It does result in some behavioral changes. It does alter inflammation, but we still need more information to know really what that means long-term. Yeah. And I don't know I'm if not you, sure how you have... I'm not sure how you feel, Go ahead, Erin. Oh, um, I was just going to say, I don't know if you have any information on this, but um, we had one speaker that came on who mentioned that brain-injured people don't have REM sleep. Like she made it kind of sound like, like that's just, you'll never get, you won't have REM sleep. Do you see that returning in your mice? I know you're disrupting their REM sleep, but does that come back for them? So we have more analysis to do on, on our sleep studies, but we do not, at least in our models, we do not see a complete loss of REM sleep in our brain injured animals. Now, the, this is a limited scope that I have to base, you know, that response on. And um, I, I guess it may also depend on the type of injury that you experience and where you are in your recovery process. But for us, we do see following the lateral fluid percussion in our animals that they do still have REM sleep after traumatic brain injury. When we disrupt their sleep with the sleep fragmentation protocol, REM sleep is vulnerable to that disruption, but it's, it's, I, I don't have, you know, enough information yeah. to confirm, you know, that, that comment. Yeah. I'm curious, um, Aaron, you know, I think your sleep loss post injury was, the more significant of the two of us, certainly. Um, where are you now with your sleep and is it still disrupted or do you feel like it's back to normal? I actually, that's a good question. Um, I can sleep just fine. Sometimes I have trouble falling asleep, but I've noticed I sleep so much longer now. I require probably 10 to 12 hours of sleep every night which is insane when you try to factor in having any sort of life at all, you know, like I feel like the little old lady climbing into bed at eight 30 and not waking up again until seven. Like, I don't think it's insane, but I'm also a brain injury person. I like, I, I can relate. I mean, I'm not a 10 to 12 hour person anymore, but, and I actually don't think I ever had that luxury post brain injury because of having kids, but I find well, interestingly, okay, so one of my kids I had pre-brain injury, so I was familiar with what that felt like. 
Then I had my brain injury. And then my daughter was born last summer, so post-brain injury. And I expected my exhaustion and brain fog to be exacerbated from my first go-around postpartum. But actually, it felt a lot the same to me. Granted, I think you're brain has a way of making you forget some of these things <laughs> on purpose. <laughs> yes, yeah, so we'll do it again. <laughs> um, but now, you know, my daughter's been sleeping through the night consistently for several months and um she's actually a champion sleeper if you ask me. But um Not but I would. do find like yeah, I probably just jinxed it. Um <laughs> I do find that if I don't get a solid 8 hours, I feel the difference the next day, far worse than I ever would have before. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, like, I've always been a good sleeper once I fall asleep, but I've pulled my fair share of, you know, all-nighters in college and crazy nights out in my 20s, and I sound like an old lady talking about this, but, um, you know, I could handle it a lot better pre-brain injury. Now, like, a loss of an hour or two from my normal Mm -hmm. eight is felt significantly the next day and takes a couple days to recover from. Like I have found I have to be really protective of my sleep um, Mm -hmm. more than ever before and maybe for the rest of my life. Who knows? But yeah. Absolutely agree. I'm in that same boat. There's no more late night partying for this girl. (laughs) Unless I have the luxury of sleeping till 11 the next day. (laughs) Yeah. Well, okay. So, um, On the anniversary of my brain injury, one year, we had a really big party at our house. We're not like crazy party people. Aaron was there. We had people who didn't leave our house until 2 or 3 a.m. And I had to put myself to bed at like 1. And I was a zombie for days after. My recovery time was not stellar. Um, So for those of you out there wondering if you should throw a raging party to celebrate the one-year anniversary of your brain injury maybe ended at midnight but (laughs) (laughs) but yeah I I do see like the the few times where I let that boundary that sleep boundary slip now it's a lot different than it was before for me absolutely yeah so I think we've started Nikki collecting a few takeaways from your research sleep's important I'm hearing that yes Um, yes Are there any other conclusions, early conclusions you're able to start to make? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's it's really related to some of the things that I highlighted regarding timing. Timing is important. Timing of sleep disruption is important. I do see in our research that there is a capacity to recover or get back what you lose at least to a degree following sleep disruption after brain injury in our model. But that, you know, the effects of sleep disruption could change over time. And uh, that is, is new for us. And then I also really see that sleep disruption, at least in our model, is a stressor. We see that because of changes in neuronal activity in brain regions that are important for coordinating sleep we see that that is different. And then ultimately, we do see changes in the inflammatory profile of the brain, not in a way that exaggerates everything that brain injury alone does, 
but that changes the composition of the inflammatory mediators that are involved. And so I think those are really where we are right now. We are starting to see, again, some behavioral changes specifically related to cognition that are changed after uh, sleep disruption following traumatic brain injury. But we have more work to do. We don't know um, which cells are most important. We don't know which pathways are most important. So we still have more work to do to better define what's going on at a cellular level. One thing that I think is really important that you said early on is um, you talked about brain injury plus what equals dementia or brain injury plus what equals Alzheimer's. And I think that's an easy thing for people to forget about. And I told this story um, when we interviewed Paige Martin, but it's worth telling again, I think. So 23andMe has all of this, you know, they add reports as they go. Um, and my mom and I, a long time ago, did the 23andMe thing. And then a couple of years ago, they added a report about whether your DNA included some of the known markers for Alzheimer's. And we both got the report on the same day at the same time. I have one, she has two, and we immediately called each other because I have had several grandparents with dementia. And my, my reaction was, okay, but you know, like just because you have this does not mean Alzheimer's in your future necessarily. But my mom was terrified, partially understandably, she saw her parents go through it. It's a really hard thing to watch, but she's, you know, got this mindset that like she has it and now she has to combat it. And she's, you know, in her late sixties, it's, you know, like really hard to say whether it will come to her or not. But I think it's important for people to remember there's so many triggers and stressors and um, there's sleep, but there's a billion others um, out there. And some of them we're probably not even aware of at this point, but, um, but yeah, so it's a very good way of looking at it. Yeah. And that actually is really in line with some of the other studies that we have in the lab where we can look at some of those genetic risk variants to Alzheimer's disease. Again, going back to some of the transgenic models I used in my postdoc, but instead thinking about some of the genetic risk factors for late onset Alzheimer's disease. So when you get dementia later in life, which is much more common than the early onset Alzheimer's disease, that's really linked to some of those key genetic risk factors like those involved in processing APP. Um, and so we can consider, for example, APOE4, which has been you know, associated with development of Alzheimer's disease late onset. So we can consider a genetic mouse model that has humanized APOE4, give those animals a traumatic brain injury, and then study molecular mechanisms that may be important in linking that brain injury to development of Alzheimer's-like pathology. So we're starting to do some of those studies as well. And then ultimately, you know, to make it even more complicated, you could use a mouse model that's got those genetic risk factors and then introduce another immune stressor. And that could be something like sleep disruption, but it could also be something like infection, right? We <clears throat> experience infections all the time. Maybe not all the time. That might not be the, the best way to say it, but right, like we can get an infection. And so 
how does infection after brain injury influence outcome? How does infection after brain injury influence outcome if you have a risk variant of TREM2 that's associated with late onset Alzheimer's disease? We can ask those questions in the lab, which is exciting, and that can add insight to that exact question, brain injury plus what equals Alzheimer's disease at a very basic level. We can ask some more complicated questions by utilizing those models. Yeah. yeah. Um, I have a, what might be a, a silly or strange question, but having seen what you've seen in your models and um, knowing the observations you've made about sleep, have you changed your sleep patterns at all as a non-brain injury person? <laughs> So I'm laughing. I don't know if you could see me laughing. (laughs) No, I try to. I try to have better sleep. But this is this is the problem, though, because now if I'm having trouble sleeping, I think about the consequences of the sleep disruption more. (laughs) So I can't sleep. (laughs) I can't sleep. Yeah. So so I feel like it. It's kind of like not helping me because I just think about yeah, what's happening in my brain, because we also, you know, when we first started these studies, we applied the sleep disruption protocol to naive animals. So control animals that did not have traumatic brain injury and there's an effect of sleep disruption too. And so I, I think about that and that it just makes me probably spiral even more and not sleep. All the time about sleep is not helping your sleep. No. Well, and, and too, like I, I, anyone that joins my lab, we study sleep disruption. And so our animals are nocturnal, right? So sometimes we have to come in at night to do experiments on our animals. <laughs> also and not so, good for sleep. <laughs> no, right? And so I, the, so my, the students that work with me are so dedicated and believe in the research so much that they come in at night and disrupt their own sleep to really carry out some of the, the experiments in, in, that are necessary for our studies. And so, yeah, I feel like we, we experience sleep disruption ourselves, you know, to keep us grounded in knowing kind of what we're, we're doing yeah. in our experiments. How have you not made it a two-pronged experiment? <laughs> just going to say that. Uh, your, your, your researchers <laughs> become the researched. Yeah. <laughs> yes, this is it. It's like, Yeah. So I'm curious to know, Erin, um, knowing your sleep journey, and I have a couple coping mechanisms of my own, but how do you, A, protect your own sleep and also B, um, you know, preserve it? it like, do, are you using anything to help with sleep at night? I definitely, when I was first um, struggling, you know, in the most acute phase of my injury, I was using CBD oil. I'm not sure, you know, I think it helped after I got through that initial month. I would say the first month with the addition of steroids and all that, like nothing was knocking me down. Um, but yeah, probably for the for like the second, third month after injury, um, CBD was helping just kind of calm me down enough to be able to fall asleep. Uh, since then, I do um, when I need it. I'll do a meditation before sleep. Um, yoga Nidra is helpful just to kind of relax your whole body and get into that mindset. I am, I've definitely had to stop doing screens 
Like we stop TV at least an hour before bed. I'm most of the time not checking my phone before bed. Troy's probably cringing hearing this, being like, yes, you are. <laughs> but I try yes. to at least have that down for a little while um, yeah. and tie up any conversations. Um, doing just reading um, before bed, something that's, you know, not so stimulating to my eyes, like a blue light has been really helpful. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I struggle with the screen thing before bed because it's so easy for me to drop into this like, you know, zombie scroll of Instagram. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I actually I was looking into recently trying to find a, a, an alarm clock that I can have on my bedside table versus having my phone as my alarm clock, because if it's in arm's reach, you know, that's dangerous for me. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. I still have my clock from like 1992. <laughs> I know. The problem is their their rings are really annoying. <laughs> yeah, they are. It's the, awful, like, but it wakes yeah, you up. <laughs> I, I like my iPhone's like gentle, you know, ring in the morning, but it's not and not a helpful thing in general for me. I, I I am a CBD user. People, I think, know that. I've been pretty open with that on the podcast, but I do use it specifically for anxiety and sleep. Um because at night it helps slow me down a bit, my brain. Mm. But, um, but yeah, and I'm not naturally a meditator, but I have found myself gravitating toward that at night, especially when I'm feeling agitated and having trouble settling down. But yeah. Yeah. It's been helpful. And I think, um, you know, another takeaway that I'm hearing from you, Nikki, is the stress management piece as well. Um, any recommendations or ideas as to what that would mean to a listener? Yeah, absolutely. I think too, going through this research makes me reflect on all of the stress that we have in our lives. And so I think part of, and you know, I'm cautious here because I am not a physician, but part of effective stress management is acknowledging the stressors in our lives, right? And just taking the time to recognize the stressors in our lives. And again, I think I have come to appreciate that all stress is not necessarily viewed as a negative in life. There are some very positive experiences that we have that are still super stressful and that can still influence how we go about our days and how we sleep at night. And so I try to personally acknowledge stress that I have in my life and then, you know, identifying ways to better manage that also is sounds really easy when you say it in a sentence, but in reality is difficult sometimes. And it's easy to say, Oh, you know, you can try meditation or you can try exercise or, but that's hard. It's hard sometimes. And so think considering different ways that you can effectively manage your stress. Um, definitely for me, having a support network with friends, with family, with other colleagues, you know, that I can connect with that makes a big difference. And so I really think those seem strategies, acknowledging stress, you know, identifying what works for you, having a support system can be applied uh, even 
in terms of the research that we're doing and following traumatic brain injury. And I know my husband has asked me before because he's not a scientist, he's up in banking, but he'll, you know, still lend ideas or suggestions to science. And so he says, well, why, like, why do you want to make things worse after traumatic brain injury by, you know, doing all this sleep disruption? And I think one of the, the best things is raising awareness about the effects of sleep disruption, but then also there are ways that you can manage this that don't require more therapeutics or more drugs necessarily. You know, you can identify ways that change your environment, that change activities that you do that can help with stress, with stress management, but then also ultimately that will help with sleep disruption as well. I think that's a really good point is like, uh, we've talked a lot about coping mechanisms here, but sometimes you can get to the root of that problem more easily by examining what the root causes of the stress are. And for me, I'm sure Aaron um, would agree with me on this, but a lot of what I've been doing in my life since is prioritizing the things that are on my plate and saying, okay, is this causing me stress? Is it worth it? Mm -hmm. Can it go? Um, And that's actually been one of the greatest lessons learned for me is, you know, I'm a plate overfiller. Um, Is it worth it? Does it make me happy? If it doesn't, it comes off the plate at this point. Absolutely. Unless it's absolutely necessary. But yeah. Yeah. Right. And just evaluating too, kind of what you were saying was, does this add any value to my life? Like, do I really need to put this amount of stress and this amount of strain? Is it, you know, really helping anyone or is it just making me miserable? Because I found, you know, a lot of the stuff I was putting on myself is me just adding pressure. Nobody else was expecting it. So just yeah. being able Sometimes to release that. Sometimes we are the cause of our own stress. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yes. Yeah. I think most so. of the time, at least for me, <laughs> like I was just piling it on like, okay, I got to yeah. make this something yeah, more I, than it is. We are capable of taking our own pressure off of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So I think yeah. that's an excellent note to, to end on today. Nikki, thank you so much. This, I, this is a world that... <laughs> no pun intended, but my brain doesn't always, you know, feel like it functions in. Um, But the science of this is so interesting. And this is also just really encouraging, honestly, to hear that, like, you're not a lost cause if you've had all these issues. There is recovery in it. Um, And so thank you so much for your time and for the work you're doing for this community. I think probably you don't get enough of us you know, thanking you <laughs> and thanks to the rodents out there also. Yes, absolutely. Out. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We take bopped on the head. Yeah. <laughs> yep. I know. Yeah. And yeah, we do our very best. We take care of them. We do our very best to ensure that they're taken care of and, and not experiencing anything, you know, unnecessary, no yeah. unnecessary pain. Um, but it's really, it's been such a pleasure talking with both of you and having an opportunity to, interact with you and with this community. And I, you know, if we can do one thing that helps with recovery, that helps with really just elevating the quality of life that survivors have, then that's worth it. And that's why we're in the lab and that's our goal. And that's why we're doing what we're doing. Awesome. We'll keep up the good work.
So to our listeners, if you would like to hear more about what Nikki's up to, um, you can check her out on Twitter at Kokaiko Lab, which is on Twitter. I'm going to spell it for you guys and it'll be in our show notes, but K-O-K-I-C-O Lab. Um, Her website is kokaikocochranelab.com, K-O-K-I-K-O cochranelab.com. And if you'd like to email her directly, olga.kokaikocochran at osumc.edu. And again, those will be in the show notes on our website, so feel free to check those out directly there. Or if you want to DM us or email us via our website, we're happy to shepherd any questions for Nikki on. So thank you, Nikki, for your time. And um, if you have any conclusions or progress made, you are always welcome back. We'd love to hear. Perfect. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. you. So this is Mariah signing off with my co-host, Aaron. We will talk to y'all next week on the Making Headway podcast. Hey, everyone. In case you're wondering what Aaron and I do for a living, it's not podcasting. I work in marketing, Aaron's a nurse, and this is just a side project that we love. We really do enjoy doing this and we've enjoyed being part of the community and building up a group of listeners. You guys probably don't even realize how much you help us out uh, just by supporting us. If you were looking to do a little bit extra, uh, we would love to have your ratings on Apple or whichever podcasting service that you use. Or if you hear us talk about a product on the podcast, we do include those links to Amazon in our show notes on our website. Your purchase after you click on the link just gives us a tiny little kickback. Nothing much, but it helps us pay our bills. And if you are thinking, well, this isn't enough, we want to do a little bit more on our website at www.makingheadwaypodcast.com. We have a donation page. Any proceeds we receive, we give 10% to our favorite brain injury nonprofit of the moment. So if you are looking to do a little bit more, that would be a great way to support us. Again, we appreciate you guys oh so much. Thanks so much for your time and your ongoing support. We love our listeners and we'll talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for joining us on the Making Headway Podcast. For more information and show notes, visit makingheadwaypodcast.com. Subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and leave us a review. Check us out at Making Headway Podcast on Facebook and Instagram and share with your friends. Catch you next time. All topics are intended to be used for educational and entertainment purposes only. The podcast is not to be used as a substitute for medical advice. Always consult with your healthcare provider for any issues or treatment considerations you may have. For our full legal terms, please see our website at makingheadwaypodcast.com. This podcast was recorded, mixed, and mastered with love at Stout Heart Studios. Sun rises across the ocean. 